Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and this week I'm going to be talking to Matt Doog about macro photography and mental health and how photography can potentially help you with your own mental well-being. But first, let's cover the news. So the RSPB has been flooded with reports of birds of prey being illegally shot. The charity has said that lockdown has been seen as a green light to shoot these birds. Perhaps unsurprisingly, most cases were reported near game estates. They've had 56 incidents reported from the 26th of March, averaging one a day, with 15 confirmed to have been shot in post-mortem. This is really sad to say, obviously following on from our chat with uh, Eisler a few weeks ago about the conflicts between gamekeepers and conservationists, it's obviously still a very real thing that's happening. Some of the birds that have been shot include hen harriers, peregrine falcons, red kites, goshawks, buzzards, and a barn owl. A barn owl? Why the fuck would you shoot a barn owl? Are you just... Oh, it really gets me going. Why would you shoot... So... I mean, any of them are tragic, but particularly a barn owl. Yolo Williams, who many of you will know from Springwatch, uh, found a red kite shot in Wales, and in Scotland, police are investigating several persecution cases uh, using traps on, on moors. So this is all ongoing... Uh, sadly, there are less eyes out there, so these things will kind of will happen. Uh, I guess that's one of the, the downsides of lockdown. So just keep vigilant, keep your eyes out, and hopefully we can protect some of our fantastic, iconic predators. On to this week's guest. I've been following Matt's work for some time now, and I have to ad- admit that when I see a macro photographer who's producing fantastic work, there's an incredible skill in it because it's a whole nother ball game compared to other wildlife. And Matt is one of those photographers. He produces some absolutely phenomenal images. He's from Salford originally, but then moved up to Scotland, uh, but also has had struggled with mental health over the years. And he's been very, uh, very open about it in this interview, which is obviously fantastic to hear that. So we're going to talk a little bit about macro photography, but then get into uh, mental well-being and how photography is an incredibly useful tool for helping you with those struggles. So here's the interview. So Matt, thanks for joining me. No worries. So you're something of a, a macro photography master, I think that's fair to say. With with macro photography, it's sort of, I don't think, look, look down's not the right word, but obviously uh, there's a lot more bird photographers than, than macro photographers. So what are the challenges of macro photography compared to, say, bird photography? Oh, uh, where do we start with that one? Um, <laughs> nice, easy one to start with. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, I think any genre of photography has its challenges. Um, and I think, you know, each genre has its own different set. And it, it depends on the type of person you are. With, with macro, you, you need a lot of patience. And you need to do a lot of um, field work and, and researching of subjects. And you need a lot of early mornings because a lot of... All right. Sorry. So no, I, I didn't. Well, I know, I know. With with bird photographers and mammal photographers, it's always early mornings for the for the good light and for the animals. But I always think of smaller subjects being later on. So that's the same case that you're getting up nice and early for them. Yeah, the earlier you can get out, the better for for certain species. Um, so yeah, like dragonflies, dragonflies, even spiders in the morning, as we know, everything's cold and everything's warming up. So they're a lot slower. With macro photography, you're working with such a small depth of field that you know the slightest movement of your subject and that subject is completely out of your viewfinder so if those subjects are still it's a lot easier to get a photograph and those times where the subjects seem to be slower and slower is morning and late evening 
that's not to say that I don't photograph throughout the whole day because I do. Um, and I also I lead a tour um, every year in Greece, and even at half four in the morning, Greece is really hot and everything's moving. <laughs> Um, so you don't really have a chance for things to slow down there. So you've got to be quick and you've got to be on the go. So yeah, Michael, you know, you're working at such a small depth of field. So you need to have a real keen eye for detail. That's, you know, first and foremost, you need to be able to be stable. And still, if you're shooting handheld, I do a lot of my stuff handheld. I say 99% of the work I do is handheld, especially when you're stacking photography. So with the stacking, we're moving back and forwards over the subject, and we need that subject to be still. Any slight movements, and your stack, you know, it's completely ruined. So is that in camera, or is that software you use afterwards? Well, some cameras offer it in camera, but I prefer to just take my shots consecutively and then stack them in Photoshop. You can use things like Zerine, I think it's Helicon um, or Helion, but I prefer to do it in Photoshop because if my subject does move slightly, I can alter the frames a little bit to suit and sort of fit that in with, with the subject's body. So yeah, macro photography, you know, I'd say with, with birding, you're waiting for your subjects to arrive. Most of the time you're sat in a hide. And it's, you know, it's, it's very similar in certain ways. Patience is, is the same with birding photography as well. But with macro, you tend to be on the floor a hell of a lot. You tend to be, especially if you're like me, on your belly um, in the grass <laughs> or in the bush which does get some strange looks, um, especially when you're in the parks and stuff and you're in the bushes with a camera, you know, like, <laughs> what's it? Um, and your neighbors, neighbors definitely give you a quick look over the fence and think, you know, what the hell are you doing? Lighting for macro is incredibly difficult. The higher you go with magnification, the more light you lose. So, you know, there's loads of ways to which to combat that. Newer cameras, you can increase your ISO massively, 4,000, 5,000 ISO, and you can probably get some good shots. Um, some good record keepers but nothing amazing for me i use a dual flash system which i can actually show you i've got the kit here so this is my main kit that i use oh wow so is the canon um 60 it's an old camera but it does the trick i've got the macro twin light mt24 ex which is one of canon's macro flashes and then i have the canon mpe 65 on the end the MPE allows you one to five times magnification within the lens. Normal macro lenses just give you one to one. This gives you up to times five, which is incredible, but it is very difficult at times five, as you can imagine. Yeah, okay. Times five magnification, such a narrow depth of field, even a gust of wind, and your subject's completely out of frame. So it does take some taming. It does take some time to get used to it. I also have these on the end here, which are these uh, homemade diffusers. Yeah, I was gonna say, they didn't look like something you'd buy in a shop, but I'm, I'm assuming they do the job pretty well. Yeah, so I, I bought this plastic mold off eBay, and then I was added my own materials, because with macro diffusion is everything, um, and light is everything, especially when you're working with shiny subjects like Beatles, it can be incredibly difficult to photograph, because the light can bounce off the, the Elytra and just really, really be bright and just blow all details out. So these are homemade diffusers, I'll just take one of these off. So you can see, yeah. So that's the flash unit here itself. Okay, yeah. Um, and I've added some extra hot shoes. I've got so you so a bit more elevation. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and then I add this diffuser on top, and then that just slots in there. So that gives me a bit of a wider spread of light. Yeah. So the light is flash. Um, and then you can also change these which any way you want. And is that even if it's a bright sunny day, you'll still use that setup? Yeah, yeah, because the flash will always overpower the light of the sun on your subject. 
but it won't overpower the sky. So if you were to hold a subject up to the sky, a photograph with a flash, you'll just get a nice blue background, which is what I often sometimes do, avoid things like flash fall off. Um, so lighting is incredibly um, difficult to get right with macro photographer. And then it's, well, it's your setup. You know, what do you want to work with? That's incredibly heavy. And as you can see, it's quite clunky and big. And it's not the best for being quick um, and getting in there. So some people use mirrorless setups now. Yeah, yeah, I'm on mirrorless. Um, with a small macro lens, just a standard 100mm or 60mm. And they'll maybe use extension tubes. And then they'll maybe hold a wireless flash to the side or they'll have it on a bracket. And that allows you you know, a bit more movement, a bit more flexibility, and it does allow you to get down quicker. You know, with that, it's quite clunky. I mean, I, I've worked with that for the past eight years, so I'm used to it. Um, I would never recommend um, an amateur just going into microphotography to use that kit, because <laughs> it'll put you off, and you'll never want to work with it again. No, you get some good upper body strength if you're using that uh, all the time. <laughs> a good set of knees. My yeah. Knees shot. <laughs> um but yeah, so lighting, depth of field um, are your two most crucial things. And then, you know, like I say, learning your subjects. Um, you'll see a lot of macro photographers, and um, I'll probably get a bit of hate for saying this, but... No, go for it. <laughs> it's so obvious that um, they are set up shots, and they are cool subjects, or restricted subjects. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to Victoria Hillman about this in a in a yeah. previous podcast and like her thoughts on it. So yeah, so I'm assuming you're going to let me know what you think. So what what what's your thoughts on it? You're just cheating yourself. Yeah. Uh, and you know you're not learning anything. The, the the joy of being a macro photographer for me personally is you know you're getting out there and you're learning about your subjects and you understand that you're spending time with your subjects and you get to see amazing behaviour, and you'll notice that these shots where you've got like a frog with two snails here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's just fucking sad, isn't it? When you say like, what is happening? I mean, I'm the, I'm the biggest Star Wars geek you'll ever get. I love Star Wars, but I would never get a frog and stick two snails on the end of it to make it like Princess Leia. It's just, it's just stupid. And it's so yeah. obvious. Like, it's yeah. so obvious. Yeah. You yeah. know, why do it for, for the quick 50 pound from the newspaper? It's absolutely pointless. You know, and you set in one message and not only that, you set in a precedent which amateurs cannot, realistically achieve and what that does is it puts people off completely and people will just not bother and they'll be like well i can never attain a shot like that i can never get that shot in a magazine or whatever so i'm just not going to bother and then you're restricting them you're restricting people from having this joy of learning macro photography learning what's in the gardens in the woods in the parks and exploring this whole new world that is there available right on your doorstep yeah um, so it frustrates the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's different levels though as well. Like I can understand that's the extreme, but say if you're in, in the field and you lift a rock, a rock up and say you find something there, so would, would you not touch that? Would you just photograph it as is or would you move it and put it back? Or When I do my tours in, um, in Greece, um, we often turn over rocks. And yeah, okay. I'll hold the rock up with the jumping spider on and take it. Now you could say, oh, well, that's a restricted shot. Well, yeah, I suppose I'm picking up a rock and I'm taking a photograph, but it's going straight back down to the ground. There's yeah. nothing to do with that, in my opinion. But when you start trimming and pruning and ripping up to, to get a nice, clear backdrop and stuff, I mean, you need to leave things as they are. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's exceptions, you know, in, in scientific study. Um, I understand that for scientific study, insects will be killed and, and they will be used and dissected and stuff. And we'll, you know, that's science. That's something completely different. It's not a photograph. Um, 
so the, I think the one and two are quite, you know, they're very, very different. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if you learn your subject and you be patient enough, you'll be rewarded with great, great shots that are full of behavior and you might even record new behavior. You know, you might even see new species in your garden. Um, it's all the joy of getting out there and being immersed into this world of macro photography, you know, it's better than sticking an insect in your fridge and then putting it on a piece of a leaf and then feeding it a fruit fly and saying, Oh, I've got this wild. What's the, what's the point? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I see. I see what you're saying. Definitely. And I think um, one thing I'd not really considered when you mentioned it is the patient aspect of macro. I always think of macros quick and easy, like out, bish, bash, bosh, done. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would think it mad to sit next to a bush for two hours waiting but why why shouldn't you do that it's exactly the same with other forms of wildlife so why wouldn't you sit near a flower and wait for the bee or the butterfly or whatever to land so it makes complete sense what you're saying um yeah and getting it as as natural as possible um so you you've worked with with a huge array of, of tiny subjects are, are there any that are your favorites are there any that stand out for you oh yeah i mean this is like one of the most popular questions you get asked and it's always yeah. going to be a i've actually got a photo to show you um okay Without a shadow of a doubt, I do have a live specimen upstairs. It's one of my pets, but I won't go and get it because it's too to molt. Okay. Um, it's the praying mantis. Oh. Now, cool. We don't get them in the UK, um, but this is um, a portrait of one of my old pets. Oh, wow. So, what um, kind of mantis is that? That's a cat eye mantis. Um, so, it's, they've got various names cat eye mantis, the African stick mantis. And one of the biggest in the hobby, it's, it's roughly about this big when it's adult, and your hand is absolutely so like the size the size of a hand sort of thing. Yeah, very yeah. very thin. Um, it's basically a mantis that mimics a stick insect mimicking a stick. <laughs> um, Evolution yeah, they, gone bonkers. Yeah, um, and I just love praying mantis. Um, and I found my first one in the wild um, in Greece, maybe you know, six years ago. Um, I actually won a competition. Um, with a company called Belvoir Fruit Farms. Um, and it was to go on holiday to photograph birds and butterflies. Now, this was the start of my um, photography career. So I wasn't, I didn't even know these type of holidays existed for one. And I was like, okay, well, I've won it, so I'll go. And it was probably one of the best holidays I've ever had. And it opened my eyes to what was available and what you can find in the wild. And I was photographing, a, I think it was a marbled white or something along their lines, butterfly. And it was being very, very still. And butterflies are not still. And I'm like, this is being unusually cooperative. So I was taking my photos. And it wasn't until I started to like look in the back of the camera, it was to see a praying mantis was actually eating the butterfly. And it was just perfectly camouflaged like a piece of grass. Um, so I was like, oh my God, it's a praying mantis. I've never seen something so big. So, you know, naturally, I'm like, coached it onto my hand and I had it on my hand for at least you know 20 minutes and I was just in awe at this praying mantis just watching it move around my hand absolutely amazing and then I put it back onto its bush um, and since then I've kept them as pets um, and I do use them um, for outreach programs um, as well so when I go to the school if I take them with me um, because most people don't get to see a praying mantis. No, you know? no, no. So really, for macro photographers, they should all carry a praying mantis around with them, and then it can catch the bugs for them, keep them still, and that's a great way of getting the pictures. Yeah, well, I mean, this butterfly was... I was just getting shot, and it wasn't until I zoomed in until I realised that half of it was completely missing. Oh, OK, well, that maybe not, not as good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned your outreach, actually, because 
you've got this real passion for the smaller inverts and as part of that you say you go to schools and you educate children so what what made you want to do that first and foremost is i never had that as a kid and growing up where i grew up it, it wasn't cool to like insects it wasn't cool to be interested in any of this type of stuff i mean times have changed massively since you know since 15 20 years ago but i loved this type of stuff as a kid um and then by the time i got to around about eight nine ten when your peer pressures start um i sort of fell off and fell into a group because it wasn't cool to be interested in this type of stuff and there was never anybody, anybody really there to encourage him, you know, to encourage that passion, to tell me to chase these, these, these passions and dreams. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why I do it. The second is we need to educate children now um, on the importance of, you know, the invertebrates and what, what essential role they play in the world. Um, because without them, we'd, we'd be fucked, you know? <laughs> is, that, is that a direct quote, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, when I go into your schools, I'm trying to educate these children, you know, about the importance of, of what, you know, you can find in your gardens and, and what's below your feet and try and inspire them and encourage them to learn and become passionate and want to protect what we have. Um, and, you know, this will snowball into, we talk about climate change, climate breakdown. We talk about um, conservation. We, we talk about absolutely everything. Um, and one of my bugbears is spiders with kids. So whenever you get a praying mantis out, the first reaction is the kids are all like, and, and they're all scared. And it's only until they've held it and they've watched it and looked at it and inspected it that they realize it's completely harmless. And it's my way of trying to get them to understand that you don't have to fear certain things, um, spiders especially. And this is, you know, it's an inherited fear. It's fear that's come from mums and dads and carers and aunts and uncles and grandparents. It's come from the media. It's come from film. Um, and I think a lot of the disrespect for wildlife and animals starts there. If you, you know, you see kids just killing a spider, squashing a spider, I think it can spiral. You know, I think it can build and it can build this disrespect. Well, if I can kill a spider, I can, I can kill anything that's small. And because it's small, it's insignificant and it means nothing to me. And that type of attitude, you know, it grows and it manifests. And then when they get to teenagers, you know, they'll be throwing rubbish, they'll be doing whatever they want to do. And I think that's where it all starts. So if I can get into school and stop that, teach them to understand these, these insects and their arachnids and love them, then maybe it can change that and I can break that chain, you know, and I can, I can hopefully build a team of naturalists and conservationists, you know? That, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I'd never considered that before, but it makes complete sense what you're saying, that kind of lack of respect. You know, it all starts with just squashing a little insect and then it, it spirals. So I never thought of it like that, but that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. And of course, the, the archetype of that is, is the false widows, the amount of media friends every year. It's always yeah. sharks in Cornwall and false widow spiders in schools or whatever. And it is yeah. bonkers how they blow it out of proportion, isn't it? Or murder hornets. That was the latest. Yes, one. yeah, I saw that. So they're the Asian ones. Yeah, I mean, yeah. murder hornets, what a name. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a cool name, murder hornets. But I mean, yeah, it's just blown well out of proportion. And then there was a video, I think it was um, on Facebook, and it was somebody grabbing a handful of these hornets. And they're going, oh, look, they're completely harmless. They don't do anything. And I think it was the males, and I think the males are stingless. Ah. So, yeah, so you're not telling the full story. No. You know, you're going to. You know, people going out going, how oh, the hell much I'm getting yeah. So you've got to be careful. But um, yeah, the media is ridiculous. Last year I did a piece in the Scottish newspapers about it. Um, 
excuse me, and I was talking to the newspapers about spiders um, and why we need to understand them. And, um, you know, they are such a valued um, part of the ecology, you know. Oh, definitely, just, yeah. You know, they control pest numbers greatly, they control their own numbers greatly. You know, spiders eat spiders. Yeah, so, very clean as well, aren't they? The big misconception, but spiders are incredibly clean animals, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the size of us compared to a spider, and, and we're scared of a spider. I understand people have fears. You know, that's fine. You have a fear of spiders, and they understand that when they do move quickly, they can take you by surprise. I mean, even I get surprised. I mean, I was photographing, um, I can't remember what species it was, but it was roughly, you know, about this big in Greece. Yeah. And I'm looking for macro lens, and when you look at the macro lens and your subject disappears, you're like, you know, where, where <laughs> I need to know where you are. Yeah. Um, I still have a little bit of fear, but it doesn't force me to start killing stuff. You know? No, I know. I get that with my dog. I've got a small dog, and sometimes I'll just turn around. And she's there. I go, oh shit! <laughs> and it's a dog. That's not even a spider. I'm just like bloody hell. So, I've got. I've got I, do the... I do that with the kids. <laughs> well, that that's probably warranted, isn't it? <laughs> sort of taking a bit of a left field now, but you you've been very open about your your struggles with with mental health, and I think a lot of people feel that they can't talk about it. And one thing I've spoken to a lot of wildlife photographers is that they find it, it does help. So do you think that wildlife photography potentially helps people with mental health issues? Yeah, definitely. It, it, it saved my life and there's no other way of saying it. I was in a real bad position. Um, and my, my blog is there for everyone to read. It, it's, it's really old now. Um, but, you know, the story is still the same in, in a sense that I was in a bad place and if it wasn't for photography and support from family and friends, I, there's no way I would be here. I would, I would be, I would, I would kill myself. I tried to, you know, numerous times. So it definitely allowed me access to a place that allowed my mind to calm down and process thoughts correctly. Um, and it also allowed me to disconnect from the hustle and bustle of the real world. So, you know, I could be sat at home and I could have a million thoughts going on in my head. Um, especially when you're suffering mental health, you tend to overthink everything. And then I'd go out with my camera and I'd be in a field or, you know, I'd be in the grass somewhere. And I wouldn't be thinking about anything else other than what is in front of me, um, whether that was a spider or a ladybird or whatever. But you also, you sort of transport through the viewfinder into another world. And when that happens, your mind just disconnects completely and you're just learning, like, mindfulness almost a technique of mindfulness and that actively helps anybody never you know whether you mentally got depression issues or whatever it will help anybody learning mindfulness um and i think that's what the benefit of being outside in nature actually is is it's that mindfulness it's that calmness and that that feeling of just being able to relax you know i was talking to someone the other day and they called it nature bathing which i think is a really good way of describing it but like you go out and you just kind of take it all in and so like for me that's being by a river if i'm by a river nothing really matters i'm, I'm relaxed the trickle of the water because i never really i never really used to struggle but in the last year or so for the first time i started feeling a bit down and getting anxious and i don't know where it kind of came from multitudes of reasons but the, when i'm by the river whether it's with my camera or whether i'm just sat with my dog or whatever everything's okay and then you kind of come back and you're refreshed almost I guess so I think the outdoors whether it's you know photography bird watching whatever is such an important tool for people to to recharge the batteries in a way yeah I mean whether you like you say whether it's hiking photography 
are whenever you go outside for any reason, you know, for a walk or something, you, you say you come back and you feel you feel a million times better. And you know, it's like when you have an argument with someone and someone says, you need to go for a walk. And it's true, you do need yeah. to go for a walk because as soon as you get outside, it has this calming effect and it brings everything back down to reality. Nature baby, and I I love just going into a field sometimes and just sitting down and just listening to the birds and just, I can sit for an hour and just watch what's around me and see, you know, subjects and be amazed at watching ants, especially. I love watching ants. I mean, I can lose myself watching ants. Um, <laughs> in my old garden in Manchester, there's a red ant colonies, different ones in the garden. And <clears throat> I'd get stung a million of times, but I didn't care. And I would just be watching them. And there would be a brick wall and they would just be going across a brick wall and you'd see some carrying other ants. Some will be fighting over dead ants. Some will be carrying food. Some will just be going up and down, up and down, looking for stuff. Um, just amazing to watch so characteristic and stuff. Yeah, I absolutely love ants. Yeah, yeah and then the, no, sorry. And with the, I suppose the nice thing with macro as well, or, or smaller subjects, is that, say, for example, you don't live near a nature reserve or a river or a big open space, you can escape to your garden, even if it's a little balcony. It doesn't have to be huge. And there will be things there that you can immerse yourself in. If it's just a plant pot, there'll be stuff in it. Yeah, definitely. And even inside your house, even if you've not got a balcony, um, there's a species of jumping spider that frequents the houses and loves the houses. You can find pseudo scorpions in your house. Um, I'd love to see one of those. I've never seen one. Love to. I've, just, I've literally just posted one on Twitter before this. Um, I think I saw that. Yeah, that was a lovely photo. But I'd, they're, they're tiny, aren't they? Yeah, they're not as small as springtails, but you know, okay. they're roughly okay. a couple of and these different species, so you'll have some in your in old books, which is where they get the name book scorpion from. And they eat the larvae of like carpet mites and stuff and, and you know stuff like that. So you can often find them in houses. I could say you'll get even silverfish, you know. Yeah, I do get them. I get them in my bathroom. <laughs> yeah, so you get them in your house. Um, I mean, even open your window and leave a light on and you'll get moths coming in. You know, <laughs> so there's there's many ways to get stuff inside your house and have a look, you know, and see what you get. I mean, I've got about three or four spiders just here. Um, they've all got names got, Bob yeah. and Dave and <laughs> well we just leave the spiders you know yeah why not let, let them live let them do what they want to do they catch flies and yeah if they don't catch them I catch them and give them to the mantis that's it so don't you do, so you definitely don't want to be a fly in Matt's house then no, no. <laughs> I mean they don't they don't all get killed no you know. just like, like, just just enough to send a message <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The sign on the window. Oh. Yeah. So, if someone is feeling the pressures of of mental health, what would your advice be for them? Talk. You have to talk. Um, for years, I didn't. For years, I didn't think anything was wrong with me. Um, I just thought this was me, and it was my persona, and my attitude was just who I was. Um, and I was a bit of an idiot. And it wasn't until I started to talk to people that I realised how I was thinking was wrong. And the way I was approaching problems was wrong. You know, I used to think if anything went wrong in my life, you know, it could even me be dropping a piece of toast. It could be the boiler not coming on, anything. And I would think the world was against me, you know, and I would get really angry and worked up over it to the point where I'd be really frustrated and really angry. And then you can only take so much of that frustration and anger before it starts going inside. And then you start getting really upset and really exhausted and really depressed. So you have to talk to people. It can be a doctor, it could be parents, it could be friends, it could be anybody. Just speak to somebody. And I found when I was doing the, um, the speaking with a psychiatrist, 
you, you self heal, you, you, you talk, but you also listen to what you're saying. And then you make sort of headway with what you're saying. And you're like, oh yeah. And, and you start to work out where you're going wrong and, and what's happening in your, in your own life and how you can tackle your own problems. Second would be just to get outside. Get outside and just see if it makes a difference because it will. Um, you know, go for a walk, go sit in a park, go swimming, you know, exercise, releasing those endorphins, that massively helps. It's, it's a catch-22 with me sometimes because I suffer with anxiety quite a lot. So I can, I've had bad days, I've had bad days last week because I've been furloughed and the week before and I'm, I'm really down and really depressed and, and I'm really wobbly, as a lot of people will be right now. And I know I need to go outside, I know I need to go and go for a walk, but we're restricted a little bit. So I'm like, well, what do I do? Then I get anxious about going outside, then I get worked up, and then I'm, I'm just in a complete muddle. Um, you just have to slow down. You know, you, you can let your mind run away with itself, and you just need to stop and just take a breather and just... I sometimes write things down. Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good way. Yeah, and I'll be like, right. And I can tackle each thing individually rather than trying to do it in my head because it just becomes too much. So, you know, talking is, 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 is best, definitely the main thing. Get outside get outside with nature, take up a hobby, you know, learn something, stimulate your mind. A lot of the time we, we have these processes and these thoughts going on is because we've got no stimulation. And especially while we're sat at home and people are furloughed and we've got nothing to do, we need some sort of stimulation. So when you were saying you were down by the river and you can hear the river and you can hear the birds, you know, it's stimulating your senses, stimulating your mind. And that is sometimes what we actually do need. We need some sort of stimulation. Um, so, you know, but taking up art, photography, hiking, even writing, you know, writing blogs, just talking to the internet. Um, when I first started with my recovery, I joined a, <clears throat> I joined a forum online called Talk Photography. Um, yeah, yeah, I know it, yeah. And I just started talking to people. And even though they were strangers and they were millions of miles away, we, we you could connect with people and you could you felt like you could speak to people and be open about people. And then you would begin to actually see that loads of people have similar issues and loads of people can relate to what you're talking about. And somebody might say something that'll help you and you might say something that might help somebody else. And before you know it, you're in this little group of people and you're laughing at night. You know, you're sat on the laptop and you're having a laugh and you don't get that um, when you're mentally ill because you want to stay inside and just close the doors, you know? So get writing, get on blogs, get, you know, just, just try and stay active as well. I guess is is it can be hard for a lot of of men because I know um oh, what did I read? There was a statistic about suicide in in young. It was it was ridiculously high in men, a lot higher than I thought. I, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but um, one four what was that? Sorry, one in four males. One in four. That is bonkers. That's absolutely bonkers, isn't it? And. I think it is a case sometimes men feel that they can't open up or they can't share their feelings or they're going to be scrutinized for it. But it just doesn't, like you say, you, you've, you've got to talk to someone. You can't keep it all in. No. I, when I do my outreach programs to the schools, one of them what I do, which isn't um, sort of photography related, but I bring the photography into it because that's what helped me get over my mental health is but what I'll do is I'll talk to the kids, especially in primary school, about mindfulness and mental health, especially the kids who are transitioning into high school. So just before the COVID kicked off, I was in my daughter's primary schools doing some of these talks. And one of the exercises that I do is I get the children to, I'll get a boy and I'll get a girl to come up to the front of the class. And then I'll hold, I'll get the girl to hold a hand out <clears throat> and I'll place a book in her hand. 
and I'll say just hold that and she'll hold that and I'll be like okay so this is this is just you the book represents all your just your normal thoughts and then I'll put another book on top and I'll be like okay so that second book is social media so this is all the pressures of social media that you can get okay then I'll put a third book on top and that, that will be the normal media so this is the media giving you news about war and terrorism and everything else and then I'll ask the question how's that book feeling and she'll be like it's getting quite heavy okay so then I'll put a fourth book on top a fifth book on top and before you know it she'll be struggling and, and she'll drop the books so that's my way of visually showing how your mind can be strong and then break down so then we'll start the books up again and I'll ask the, the pupil what can you do to help and she'll be like well I can put the books down and I'm like yeah so you can get rid of some of them thoughts and you can work through them but you can also and I'll bring another person up from the class and you can share that problem so another person puts their hand under their hand to support the weight so that's visualizing talking. So you talk to people. And then I'll have the boy do the same. And the boy will be six books, seven books, eight books, nine books. And they'll be like, and they'll be struggling and they'll be really trying to keep on. And that is the difference between males and females is that the females will eventually know and they'll speak, but the males want to hold on. The males think they're strong and the macho and they don't have to give in and they don't have to break down. So they will try their very best to hold all this weight. And this is where we go wrong. So that's my way of showing the difference between the whole male and female's work, you know? Yeah, I, I think that works really well for kids to show that like, you can talk to them about it, but that actual representation is going to help them understand it a lot better. And I think that's a really good way of showing that off. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I even had one boy be like, I can hold mine and his, you know, and I'm like, that's just typical. You know, it's yeah. just your alpha male. And this is why a lot of these lads will, will struggle. They'll struggle to talk because they don't feel like they can let go of all these issues. And they might take other people's issues on and not realise yeah. that building and building and building and eventually it's just going to tumble. So would you say, obviously, you've kind of already answered this in a way, but with the photography, are you, are you in a better place now? Oh, yeah, massively. Yeah, yeah good. I've not had any real big episodes for years. I mean, <coughs> probably last year was a time where I had like a couple of weeks where I was just really bad, but I wasn't sleeping. Um, I, I, I worked shifts, so it wasn't helping. And I was getting up early with my kids because my wife would be working and I'd be sitting on the sofa with the kids after working in night shift. And it takes its toll. And that's you know, it's another thing. Plenty of sleep helps the mind. It's almost like when you do a defrag on the computers, you know, back in the 90s. <laughs> Same thing when you sleep, you de defrag your brain, you know. So sleeping is, is essential. And yeah, I had a bit of a bad time. I didn't go back onto antidepressants or anything, but I did go to the doctors. I did say, look, I'm getting bad. I'm just putting you in the picture, letting you know where I'm at. Um, and she was like, okay, come back next week and speak to me. Um, and I went back the week later and, and I was fine. And especially now, the, the times we're living in right now are very, very testing. But I've learned to have coping mechanisms and what I can do to help me. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely in a better place and photography is the main reason, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and I've got a lot to live for, you know, I've got my beautiful kids, I've got a family, you know, so it's never as bad as it seems. No. It's, it's bad in here because it's all you're thinking and you create your own reality in your head and it's always a lot worse than what it actually seems. And when you talk, you begin to realise actually it isn't as bad as I think it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's... Um... It's really interesting to perspective to hear it all from that, and I think makes a makes a lot of sense. I guess it's good as well that you're recognizing uh, when you do need help. So you're like, actually, you know what? I need to talk to someone. I need to go and do that. So it's it's good that you're recognizing those those triggers. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
Well, look, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's great to hear a little bit about macro photography because it's, I, I do a little bit of it, but I'm by no means an expert. And I think it's great to hear how photography has helped you with, with some of the mental health uh, issues that you've had. So thanks for coming on to the podcast. No worries, thanks for inviting me. It's my first one, so I hope it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible, to be honest, mate. I don't even think I'm going to use it. Every <laughs> <laughs> day, yeah. All right. Cheers. Take care, mate. All right. Cheers, mate. Thank you. That was fantastic to hear some tips about macro photography. Certainly something I could improve on, but also his experience uh, with mental health and how photography has has arguably saved his life. And I think that's one thing we can all relate to, that photography is a tonic for us, whether it is a way for us to just take our mind off things, to release stress, to just go out and get endorphins from enjoyment. Photography is such a fantastic way of, of doing that. And especially in these times, go for a walk with your camera and just enjoy yourself. Now that brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week and I wanted to choose a venue that would be good for macro. So I've gone for Red Hill Coronation Meadows. Now it's a site in the Lincolnshire Wolds that is managed by the Lincolnshire Wildlife Trust. At around four acres, it's not huge, but packs a lot in. In the spring and summer, this reserve is a wash of wildflowers, with chalk grassland playing host to local specialities, such as fellwort, yellowwort, basil thyme, and bee orchids to name a few. Earlier in the year, there are masses of cowslips. It's an absolute sea of yellow, and I have never seen anything like it, just in terms of a mass of wildflowers. I think I'm so conditioned, or, or people are so conditioned, just seeing little tiny patches, fragments of it. But this is a whole field that's transformed into a traditional English wildflower meadow. Now, it wasn't always that way. The site was a field of barley in the 1990s, uh, before the Lincolnshire Wildlife took it over, and then transformed it into a nature reserve. One of the remarkable things about this reserve is a local wildflower enthusiast, Harry Turner, scoured the local area for plants and seeds, often hand-planting them to get them started over the years before they got established. And this took ages, ages and ages and ages. It's called Red Hill Coronation Meadow, one for the red chalk in the ground, but the coronation bit comes from Prince Charles, who was concerned with the decline of wildflower meadows, with the UK losing 97% of its wildflower meadow sites. So sites like this are incredibly important for biodiversity. The Coronation Meadow project was to highlight one meadow in each county to showcase what it should look like, and this was Lincolnshire's. It's designed as a bit of a seed bank program, so that seeds can be taken from this meadow and spread across the county. While this is definitely a place for the botanists, there are also common lizards, grass snake, skylark, corn buntings, meadow pipit, and hundreds of different kinds of invertebrates feeding on the flower's nectar. So it's an ideal place for macro photography. Things like marbled white butterflies and painted ladies. The best time to visit is between April and August. Obviously in the winter, there's not a great deal of flower life there. I'm sure there's still wildlife there, but April to August, that's when you want to go. There's a small car park nearby, but as the name suggests, it's also on a hill. So again, if you can't walk too far, that may be an issue. For the most part, it's an accessible reserve, going over styles, etc. There are no facilities there. You know, it is literally just a field, but it's well worth a look. However, Horncastle is a short drive away with everything that you could need. So if you're in the Lincolnshire Wolds, go to Redhill Coronation Meadow. 
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I know I had a ball talking to Matt. He was a great guy to speak to. And I've been Jack Perks. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. And I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.